Would you uh, please turn with me this morning once again to Philippians chapter 2. Take a look again at verses uh, 5 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we're looking this Christmas season at what is believed to be uh, an ancient Christian hymn, which Paul quotes here in verses uh, 6 through 11, known as the Carmen Christi. Uh, last week, we, we looked at the, the being of Christ in verse 6, what he is, who being in the very form of God. We looked at the person of Christ, who he is, the divine son. And we looked at the mind of Christ, he who being in very form God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself. Uh, taking on the form of a servant. Today, we're going to set our attention on verse 7. And this verse focuses our attention on what we might say is the very heart of uh, Christmas, the very heart of uh, the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, The wonder that he who was in very form God took the form Of a servant. And I think this one little verse contains three surprising truths that we might even call paradoxes. And this morning we're going to do our best together to try to understand them. Uh, The first paradox we'll call uh, subtraction by addition. Subtraction by addition. You see it there in in verse 7. He emptied himself. That's a kind of subtraction. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. There's a kind of addition there. We'll come to that in a few minutes to try to understand it. The the second paradox. The Lord became a slave. The Lord became a slave. The one, Paul says, who is in form God took the form of a servant. And then the third paradox, the creator became a creature. Creator became a creature, born of the Virgin Mary, born in the likeness of men. So three paradoxes, subtraction by addition, the Lord became a slave, the creator a creature. We're going to try to understand those today. But let's turn to uh, the reading of God's word at this point and read again Philippians 2 verses 5 through 11. Let's hear God's word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the, very, in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, To the glory of God the Father. 
But I think it's uh, safe and right to say that life as we knew it has in many ways been upended in 2020. Uh, our lives have been disrupted by a novel virus and attempts to get a, a, a hold on it, to try to control it. We've seen stock markets plummet, uh, global market values drop. We've seen record numbers of people without jobs. And, uh, and then on top of that, of course, you've, we've, we've seen a lot of people get sick, um, especially the elderly. Uh, some of them recover, but many do not. And this past week, we passed the grim marker of 300,000 deaths uh, attributed to COVID within our own nation since March. And then you can add on top of that to, to make matters worse. People are suffering from attempts to get COVID under control. Uh, record numbers of cases of people struggling with loneliness and depression and anxiety. I saw one interesting statistic this week that the only demographic in which emotional health has gone up this year is among those who have consistently been attending church throughout this time. But it is certainly the case that problems of loneliness, depression, anxiety are up as people are stuck at home. You've got parents trying to uh, adjust to working from home, perhaps even while they're trying to teach their children how to do this schooling online thing. The needless to say, it's, it's been a year of new challenges for, for many, many people. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a name that might be familiar to you, might, I, I think it's right to say he, he knew a thing or two about living in the midst of challenging times. He knew a thing or two about living in a, in a dark time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the Lutheran German pastor uh, who fought against, in many ways, the, 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 the Nazis in Germany, eventually was, was martyred, uh, killed. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we have a letter that he wrote home to his parents. And uh, it was while bombs were continuing to fall all across Europe, and cities lie in ruins, right? and rubble, and wreckage. And he said to his parents, Christmas comes even in the midst of the rubble. Whatever darkness, whatever trouble that surrounded them, whatever loss and sorrow they endured, Christmas comes. Now he was not trying to encourage his parents merely with some holiday sentimentality, saying, you know, no matter how bad things get here in Europe, we still have this, this holiday to celebrate. That's not what Bonhoeffer was after. He wanted to remind his parents that Christ has been born. So hope endures, and light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. Bonhoeffer, you see, he saw so clearly the implications of the first coming of Jesus. Amidst the Suffering of this world, the deliverer has come. So while bombs may fall and cities lie in ruin, and while a virus rages and lives and livelihoods are threatened, Christmas comes amidst the rubble. 
And so nearing the end of a tough year, I, I think the paradoxes here in verse 7 really, really are a lifeline for the people of God. And we need to say up front, look, our, our disappointments, our struggles, our depression and anxiety, our, our losses, it's all real and it can't be driven away with holiday sentimentality. In fact, as I think many of you here would confess today, the holidays might just make things worse. And what we need more than anything else is to be reminded and assured that the Redeemer has come. That the Savior was born, who is Christ the Lord. Uh, God has come in human fashion. He has stepped into the world of our struggles. And he has stooped to conquer and to save and to redeem. Christmas comes, dear friends, even in the midst of the rubble. Sin, that means, does not get the last word. Death does not win. Darkness is not forever. Because Christ has come in the veil of tears. We have hope. And that is the wonderful news that I think these three paradoxes compel us to recognize and confess as God's people. And so let's take a look at them this morning. The first of them, as I said, is sub subtraction by addition. Uh, in verse 6, Paul, Paul told us Christ is in form God. So all that's true of God's divine nature is true of Christ. He is God the Son, the second person of the, the blessed Trinity, one with the Father and the Spirit. And equal with God, Paul says Christ does not fear to lose the glory that he enjoys with the Father and Spirit in the unity of the Godhead. In Paul's words, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be clutched at as though he might somehow forfeit his status. But rather, rather, in perfect, the perfect security of his deity and his dignity, Paul says he emptied himself. Some other translations say he made himself of no reputation. He made himself nothing. But the Greek literally says he emptied himself. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Of what did he empty himself? It's clear that the moment he emptied himself is the moment that he took on human nature and was born of the Virgin Mary. Because that's what Paul goes on to talk about, his being born in human likeness. So the moment of his self-emptying is when he's born of the Virgin and laid in a manger. But of what did he empty himself? Now this has been a, a, a discussion in church history and there have been varying explanations. So let's park here for a few minutes and reflect upon this. There have been some, what I would consider, bad explanations. One of them goes like this. Jesus Christ emptied himself of his deity in order to become a man. But that isn't at all what the Bible teaches, is it? That Christ emptied himself of his deity in order to be born in the likeness of man. And if you just think about that, if you think it through theologically, any notion that Christ was less than fully God 
would leave us without a Savior and without any hope of salvation. He must be, he must be the infinite eternal God in order to deal with the infinite and eternal debt and guilt of our sin. Sin that we have committed against such a God. No one but God alone can rescue us from our sin and guilt. Now, if you were in Sunday school, you should be thinking, wait, this sounds a little bit like somebody we talked about, Anselm of Canterbury, who, who said that in order to deal with the infinite debt of our sin and guilt, the Savior must be God. But in order for him to be the Savior of humanity and a mediator between God and man, he must also be fully man. Hence, it is fitting the God-man, the Savior of Adam's race. But the idea that he emptied himself of his deity, we have to say, is simply the wrong explanation. But then another explanation comes along, and it's a variation of the first. Okay, God didn't empty himself of his deity, but here's what he did. He emptied himself of some of his divine attributes in order to become a human being. Attributes like omniscience, his comprehensive knowledge, attributes like his omnipresence, being everywhere present. And in order to become a true human being, Christ had to set aside some of his divine attributes in order to be our Savior. That's another explanation. But that's a, another wrong explanation, I think. So what's, what's going on here? Let's, let's think through this one for a minute. It starts with the assumption, I think, that God is a bigger, better version of ourselves. And as human beings, we, we have parts, don't we? We have, we have attributes. Uh, we have certain qualities or attributes that are distinct from ourselves. Right? The color of our hair can change over time and we don't cease to be our essential selves. Some of us can lose our hair, and I sure hope that doesn't mean that we lose our essential selves, or else I better start looking for, for Jared. He's out there somewhere. You see, we have these, these qualities, these attributes, which are external to ourselves, not essential to what makes us us. We can think of it in, in other terms, too. How about, let's, let's just take wisdom. We can... We can decrease in wisdom, we can grow in wisdom, but we still are our essential selves, just a less, less wise or more wise version of ourselves. So we have these parts, these attributes, that are not essential to what makes us us. But you see, here's where we need to understand, God is not like us in that way. It's not like this with God. Follow, follow with me here. God is identical with his attributes. God is identical with his attributes. And just, just think about this. This is how the Bible speaks about God, doesn't it? God is light. God is righteous. Or God is love. Let's take that one because that one's uh, familiar to us. That means that there's not this eternal, ideal uh, category of love. right? And in eternity past, God said... Yeah, I think I want to be loving. 
And I'm going I'm to take on that attribute and identify myself as a loving God. Friends, that's, that's not how it worked. God is love all the way down. He is the source of love. God is light. God is truth. God is goodness itself. He is who he is. So he cannot gain or lose attributes without ceasing to be what he is. But this explanation that we're thinking about says, well, if God is kind of like us, then he has attributes in addition to his essential self that he can that he can set aside so that he can become a man, take off like a, like a garment. That, there you go. that explains it. That explains this verse. He emptied himself of some of his divine attributes in order to become a man. But you see the problem with that. The fundamental problem with that is God is not like us in that way. He isn't made up of parts. And there are not qualities that he possesses, some essential, some not, to his deity. We, we need to understand, again, hey, we're, we're swimming in the deep end. Remember that. We, we talk about God's attributes as, as creatures individually, don't we? We talk about his glory, his power, his love, his grace, his goodness, and so on. And we do so because we really have no way to speak as creatures about the full reality of what it is we are trying to describe. And so we inevitably have to talk about God in a piecemeal fashion. But the truth is, God doesn't have attributes. God is his attributes. All the way down, God is who he is. And this means if the divine son, right, the divine son equal with the father, and the Spirit, the one who has informed God so that all that can be said about the divine nature can be said of Christ. If the divine Son were to take away, to subtract from himself, or empty himself of any one of his attributes, he would cease to be God. Right? He would cease to be God because God doesn't have attributes. He is his attributes. See, attributes is really a creaturely way of talking about what God is from our finite, limited, creaturely perspective. But all of the attributes of God are the same essential reality. The single, indivisible, perfect, simple being of the one God. So God cannot set aside any of his attributes any more than he can relinquish his existence. See, we run into the limits of our language here, and it actually shows up, I think, in some of the Christmas hymns that we sing. Take, take the example of uh, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, when Charles Wesley has us sing, uh, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man may no more die. Think about that. And let's make sure that we know what I think Charles Wesley meant because it could be misunderstood. You know, we think about the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. We say he, he reveals to us the Father. Right? He exegetes the Father to us. But when we look upon the life and ministry of Jesus, we don't see 
God coming forth in uncreated glory, blazing forth and destroying everything in its path. Right? We see, no, we see a baby lying in his mother's arms. We see a rabbi teaching on the streets of Jerusalem. We see a man condemned on the cross between two criminals dying not because he himself is guilty, but dying in the place of the guilty. And we say, in this way, God is revealed to us. And I think that is what Wesley is getting at when he has us sing, mild he lays his glory by, born that man may no more die. But strictly speaking, is it accurate to say that the eternally begotten Son of God can lay aside his glory? No. Because God is his glory. Glory is the Bible's way of speaking about the essential nature and character of God. Who is God? He's glorious. He cannot lay aside his essential nature without ceasing to be who and what he is. And for that matter, who and what we need. So there are two wrong explanations, right? One says he empties himself of his deity. Another that tempers that a little bit and says, well, no, he, he just empties himself of some of his divine attributes in order to become a man. But there's one other wrong explanation we can deal with much more briefly. It says, okay, if those things are wrong, here, here's the right explanation of the self-emptying of Christ. He emptied himself of his prerogatives, his divine rights. Now, I think this one might be if we can put it this way, inching a little bit closer to the truth, but it still, it still misses the mark for this reason. Christ incarnate still claims the right and prerogatives of God, doesn't he? When we look at the, the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the, the wind and the water obeys his command. And that wonderful story of Jesus in the boat with his disciples is, of course, Grounded in and alluding to a psalm in the Old Testament that speaks about the Lord commanding creation with, the, with his voice. And who is this who is in the boat with these scared disciples? It is none other than Yahweh himself. It is none other than the Lord come in human flesh. And at his voice, at his command, the blind see. The deaf hear, the lame get up and walk, the dead even obey his commands. And you think of the story in Luke chapter 5 when those friends bring uh, their paralyzed friend and lower him down through uh, the, the roof, the ceiling, to get him to Jesus. And Jesus looks at this paralyzed man. And what, you remember what Jesus says to him? He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that was a that was a scandal. Because the people understood the implicit claim. That's why they were asking the question, uh, who can forgive sins but God alone? They understood what Jesus was implying when he said, son, your sins are forgiven because the only one who can forgive sins is the one against whom we have sinned, God himself. And Jesus Christ is able to forgive Sin, because Jesus Christ is God come in human flesh. So in the incarnation, he doesn't relinquish 
his rights or prerogatives. Okay, so then you're, you're thinking, enough of this, Jared. What, what is, <laughs> what's the right reading then of verse 7? What does it mean that Christ emptied himself? Well, how did that take place? Well, actually, actually, the text tells us, doesn't it? I find this really refreshing. We don't, we don't have to speculate. We don't have to be innovative. We don't have to do theological gymnastics. We just have to read our Bibles carefully. And notice what verse 7 says. He emptied himself. How? By taking. You see that language? By taking. That's how. The Son of God added to himself his person, something that had not been there before. Without any change to who he eternally was as God. And an act of condescension, as an act of condescension, it entailed a kind of emptying, a self-humbling, a stooping, not ceasing to be what he eternally was. He took that which he had never been before. So what did he add? He emptied himself, read on then, by taking the form of a servant, the form of a servant. And that takes us right to the second paradox, doesn't it? That the Lord became a slave. Verse 7 could be translated in a, in a straightforward way. Himself he emptied the form of a servant taking. Himself he emptied the form of a servant taking. Now remember, back in verse 6, Paul says he was in form God. And that's that Greek word morphe. He was the morphe of God. And he uses the very same word here. Now he says that when he came, he came in the morphe, in the form of a servant. So put those two statements alongside of each other. All that is true of God is true of Christ. And all that is true of servant or slave is true of Christ incarnate in his earthly ministry. The word, again, it's the Greek word, not merely for servant, but for slave. So don't, don't imagine, you know, a household servant on salary who's got a life of his own. I don't think that's what Paul wants us to be thinking about here. He wants us to be thinking about the lowest of the low. This is, this is meant to be shocking. This is meant to be jarring when you read it. Here is the one who is in form God, the living God, the great I am. And when he comes to redeem us, he comes as a slave. He comes as a servant. He comes to serve. Now, many people have noticed a connection here uh, between what Paul is saying in Philippians 2 and the scene we have recorded for us in John chapter 13. When Jesus, on the night in which he's betrayed, he's with his disciples, and they make their way to the upper room. Now, it was tradition, and it was, it was uh, standard in that time, whenever a group would gather for a meal like that, that a household servant would wash the feet of his master and of his guests before they sat down to share a meal together. It was slave work. Right? Nobody of any dignity would ever do it. So you can imagine the shocker when here they are in the room and they see Jesus take off his outer garment and 
wrap a towel around his waist and fill up a basin of water and get down one by one to wash the dirty feet of his disciples. Can you imagine the scene? The looks on their faces in stunned silence. What on earth are you doing, teacher? Peter finally speaks up. Lord, you can't wash my feet. And Jesus says, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Peter says, give me a bath. Right? Wash me entirely. See, the Lord Jesus is showing us in symbol form why he came, dear friends. He came to serve. And he came to do the dirty work of making you and I clean. What's the incarnation all about? It is about the one who is in form God, the form of a slave taking. He stoops, he condescends to make you clean. Maybe, maybe you're here, maybe you're wondering in your own life, you know, what am I ever going to do with the mess that I have made of my life and this sin that just clings to me like grime that I cannot get rid of? What about this, this guilt that is covering my garments? I need relief. Well, dear friends, that's why Jesus Christ came. That's why he came. He came to serve by washing you with his blood to make you clean, to bear your burdens as the servant of the Lord so that you might be clean and know the joy of pardon and acceptance with God. The Lord takes the place of a slave so that you can be free. So subtraction by addition, the Lord became a slave. And then the third paradox here, the creator was born a creature. Look at the last part of verse 7. Uh, again, literally it reads, himself he emptied the form of a slave taking in the likeness of men being born. A likeness of men does not mean that Jesus merely resembled our humanity, but was not in fact a true human being. That's not at all what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is that Jesus is a human being in all of the ways that you and I are except for sin. And it is very, 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 very likely, I am personally persuaded of this, that Paul has Genesis in mind here when he uses this language, the likeness of men. Do you remember in Genesis 1 when we read about God creating man in his own image after his own likeness? And then we go forward to Genesis chapter 5 and that language is repeated when God made man, he made him in the likeness of God. But then Genesis 5.3 says, Adam fathered a son in his own likeness, or after his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. And so Paul, when, when Paul says Christ was born in the likeness of men, he's picking up this Genesis Adam language of the sons of Adam being made in the likeness of their earthly father. And I think what Paul is communicating here is that the divine son 
who is the creator of the first father, Adam, who, who made Adam in his own image and likeness, now comes in the fullness of time, time born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, and he comes in the likeness of Adam as one of us, as a second man, or as the last Adam. Now, we, we all remember what happened with, with the first Adam in the Garden of Eden. But maybe we haven't read the Garden of Eden narrative in the light of Philippians 2. And I think Philippians 2 actually sheds a great deal of light on our reading of the temptation in the Garden. Remember that Adam was tempted by the servant through Eve to take the forbidden fruit because Satan had said what? What was the temptation? You will be like God. Adam thought equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so grasping for equality, he broke the commandment of God ruined his creaturely likeness to God, and in consequence, sin and corruption and death comes to us all. Now we live, don't we, in the, 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 the rubble and the wreckage of the first Adam's sin, and we continue to pile on our own wreckage, don't we? But a second man, Paul is telling us, has been born. A last Adam has come, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, and who gladly became what he was not without ceasing to be what he eternally was. See, the living God, Paul is teaching us in this passage, took flesh to become a servant, and as we'll see next week, to intensify this, to become a servant to what point? To the point of death, obedience to the point of death, even death on a cursed cross. So you see what he's saying? In place of our first father's disobedience, right? instead of what Adam did not do, and instead of what you and I now cannot do, right? we cannot keep the commandments of God as sinful human beings. It's impossible. For us to do it perfectly. But a new Adam has come. And he has perfectly obeyed. As the servant of the Lord. The second man. The, the slave. Who bears our burdens. And washes us clean. By his obedience. And by the shedding of his blood. This is dear friends. This is the heart of the good news. Of Christ's coming. Of Christ's incarnation. Sin. Death. Hell undone and defeated by the one who took the form of a slave and who was born in the likeness of men. The second Adam, the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we, as we try to come to terms to some degree with these paradoxes, here's, here's the so what significance of this. So what significance of these uh, Christmas paradoxes. It's that the sorrow and grief and disappointment and struggles that you and I face, it, it is a reminder, isn't it? A sharp, keen, and at times 
painful reminder that we are living right now in the wreckage of the first Adam's transgression. But the goodness of the incarnation, you see, it's designed to remind us that another Adam has come, and he has come in the midst of the rubble to make blessings flow as we sing, far as the curse is found. He has come as the second man, the faithful servant of the Lord. And dear friends, he alone is able to heal us. He alone is able to forgive us. He alone is able to cleanse us. And as he one day will do, he alone is able to make all things new. And wipe away every tear from our eyes. Until then, dear friends, though it may be through tear-filled eyes. We can rejoice, can't we? We can rejoice because Christ has come. And he has come in the midst of the rubble. And he's coming again. Praise God. Praise God that this is true. Let's pray together. Lord, there are times when we, we get fixated on the, the wreckage and the rubble and we can't see anything else. Would you please remind us afresh today that Christ has come in the midst of the rubble as the servant of the Lord. He who is in very form God took the form of a servant and obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross so that we could be forgiven and made clean and made new and one day know and experience the wonderful reality of the new heavens and the new earth where your people will dwell with you for all eternity. Fix our eyes upon this great hope that is ours in Christ Jesus and lead us to rejoice. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.